Hello, Shedding Light friends. This is Candy. We were going to release our final wrap-up episode on Melanie Etier, but due to unforeseen circumstances with my family, I was not available. Instead, we have created The Long Journey Home. We are very committed to the Shedding Light podcast, but when family needs us, we answer. I appreciate all the kindness shown to me by these two wonderful ladies. This just confirms that I have the right friends by my side on this podcast journey. Listeners, we thank you for your support, and we encourage anyone to reach out to us with any information regarding Melanie Etchie. Celine and her family have waited far too long. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4, Melanie Etchie, The Long Journey Home. shedding light on missing persons cold cases across Canada in an effort to help families find the missing piece of the puzzle. Hi, this is Mary. I've been listening to these girls recording in my basement for hours. And I have to warn you, there's some very foul language and adult content going on. Listener, discretion is advised. We were very fortunate and honoured to have the opportunity to interview Michael Arntfield, a Canadian academic, author, true crime broadcaster, university professor, Fulbright scholar, and former police officer. Arntfield was a police officer and detective in London, Ontario, Canada from 1999 to 2014, when he left policing to accept a customized academic appointment at the University of Western Ontario, where he now teaches what he calls literary criminology in a combined English literature, professional writing, and crime studies program. In 2011, Arntfield created a student-run unsolved crimes think tank and case evaluation study group known as the Western Cold Case Society. The society receives roughly 30 to 50 requests for review and audit per year, mostly from private citizens and the families of murder victims who have grown frustrated with police inaction or ineffectiveness. He is also a board member of the Murder Accountability Project, a nonprofit organization which disseminates information about homicides, especially unsolved killings and serial murders committed in the United States. The Murder Accountability Project was established in 2015 by a group of retired detectives, investigative journalists, homicide scholars, and a forensic psychiatrist. You're a university professor now, correct? That's right. 
And prior to that, what did you do? I was a police officer and detective for just over 15 years and still actively involved in investigations uh, in addition to my uh, work at the university. And then they naturally converge uh, within the realm of my cold case society, which is the unsolved crimes and cold case think tank that I operate at the university. So the Western Cold Case Society was founded in 2011, and it began as a class where the students' uh, term project was digging into a cold case that had to be at least 25 years old. That then evolved into a full-time club or group, and we now work in partnership with the Murder Accountability Project in Washington, where we rely on a, a the largest data set in the world of homicides, both solved and unsolved. And our computer algorithm finds patterns that are atypical and often indicative of serial homicide. And my students dig into those patterns and then report our findings back. And to date, have you resolved any old cold cases? Well, you need to set uh, proper expectations. We are limited ethically, just in terms of common sense, what students can do. We have successfully gotten cases reopened. We have successfully had cases that were declared either accidental or undetermined deaths uh, reviewed by the coroner, and one has been reopened as a homicide and is being reinvestigated now some 15 years later based on our report. Uh, we have uh, gotten, again, fields and rivers searched by police uh, where we know the rem that remains are found. Uh, they haven't been found yet, but people listen to our advice and follow up. In partnership with the Murder Accountability Project, again, we advise law enforcement that they have active serial killers in their cities that they previously didn't know about. And we've got uh, arrests in a couple of those cases, um, one in Cleveland and the other one in Indiana. So you have a bit of an obsession with cold cases, you could say. Well, I don't like to say obsessed, but yeah, I mean, you, you don't, it's not something you just dabble in. I mean, you, you have to lean into it and the dabbling and treating it as a hobby or as a, a pet project is, is why they go unsolved and they require full-time commitment and rigorous work. As far as we can tell, it's uh, most likely a case of mistaken identity. Is that something that you have any experience with either in your police career or as a professor in criminology? It's not that common. I mean, maybe we can talk about that. Is you're talking about Melanie's case and your theory is that she was mistaken for somebody else when she was taken. Correct. And okay, so we can workshop this a bit. I haven't heard that theory before. Uh, why, where does that come from? From many people, because she had a twin in town, a young girl who looked very similar to her, so much so that family members that came to town to visit mistook one for the other. Her name was Sarah. After Melanie disappeared and she found out, apparently looked like she'd seen a ghost and she told her friends this is what they claim now she told her friends that she owed money to a drug dealer and she wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't at school on monday out new liskard is a very small town and we've had so many people reach out and tell us that it was supposed to be sarah that went missing not melanie i mean when we look at uh common offender characteristics i mean I think the presumption here is you have a, a teenage girl who, who vanishes. Uh, the presumption is some type of uh, sex offense or a sexually motivated homicide. If it's a personal cause homicide or personally motivated and 
uh, and she ends up being in the wrong place at the wrong time and a victim of mistaken identity, that would significantly narrow the suspect pool because now you have, uh, you know, in theory, a handful of people who have a discernible motive, um, and they're the usual ones, jealousy, revenge, uh, monetary gain. So naturally, if you have a personal cause homicide, you have a uh, immediately you know, delineated list of potential suspects, someone who would have uh, a personal motive, jealousy, financial gain, revenge, what, or all of the above. I mean, these are the typical personal motives. Uh, that's an improved investigative scenario over a sexually motivated homicide where essentially every adult male, until proven otherwise, is a potential person of interest now. Given that the body has never been recovered, if it were, let's let's not rule out a sexual homicide. Uh, offenders and the FBI did a study on this about five years ago. Offenders who transport the victim from the primary crime scene uh, and conceal it and conceal it well enough in this case that it's 24 years and it hasn't been found, they tend to have remarkably similar biographical and demographic um, things in common. Uh, overwhelmingly white males, overwhelmingly have a prior offense, uh, prior military service. Uh, they tend to live with somebody and be employed. Um, so, uh, and again, these are not coincidences. These are, uh, these lifestyle factors uh, de- help determine their, their decision-making when they've murdered somebody. So uh, it's, it's not surprising that people who take these extreme risks. So for instance, driving an hour with a body on board and taking that risk, knowing that the end will in theory justify the means. I mean, to come up with and be cool under pressure like that, uh, it's not surprising that people who do that are going to have other things in common. So mm-hmm. they're linked, their comic characteristics are, are linked through their modus operandi. Uh, conversely, if this was a personal cause murder, uh, some of the same characteristics may very well apply. I mean, this is somebody obviously that has a car, so she wasn't approached or ambushed on foot. I mean, there are cases where bodies have been transported by uh, a pedestrian offender, uh, but they don't, they're found relatively quickly and and in most cases are left at the primary crime scene. So then we look at, okay, uh, male offender presumably uh, owns a vehicle, um, likely has a a residence where uh, bringing her there was one possible scenario. At, at this point, it's, it's all speculation. But if, in fact, your theory is accurate, uh, I mean, that already is, is a huge leap because, uh, again, I'll go back to the case, an, another cold case that the OPP handled, Karen Coughlin in Lambton County. And mm-hmm. for, I mean, I think it was almost 40 years, they were pleading for information. And, uh, I mean, again, it's a, it's a young girl, um, preteen, uh, found in a ditch. So no other details are released, and everyone assumes, based on similar crimes in the past, that this was, again, a sexual predator. Uh, the body was left at the primary crime scene. Again, that is a, a recognized what we call disposal pathway or a decision that offenders make about what to do with a, the victim of a sexual murder. And then, uh, lo and behold, 40 years later, someone gets the case and says, oh, by the way, we forgot to mention uh, that she was the victim of a hit and run, and she was knocked into the ditch by a car. Well, that would have been helpful to know uh, 25, 30, 35 years earlier when maybe someone might have information of the whereabouts of that vehicle, but 40 years later, that's not helpful. So the fact that you have a, a plausible hypothesis that seems to be supported by at least anecdotal evidence, that moves the needle. I guess the biggest question is, after 24 years, did the public need more information in order to solve this? Can the public help to solve it? 
the public always has a key role to play in, in solving cold cases, which is why I'm a huge proponent for anniversary stories uh, and work like the work you and your colleagues are doing. But that's why I agreed to do it. Your mission is worthy, but they need, you're right, enough information to be able to offer meaningful tips. Uh, again, go back to the case of Karen Coughlin. Call us if you have any information. Well, it's not fatal to the case and doesn't compromise what we call holdback information by saying she was the victim of a hit and run. Uh, that's going to get that's going to flesh out proper tips versus you've got people calling in about their pervert uncles. Well, it's not a sex crime. And I think, uh, again, uh, properly vetting what information is released. You cannot just lock down all information and expect the public to do something with nothing. Uh, and this is why the U.S. tends to be, I mean, they have far more murders, but they tend to be very good at this and, and can sculpt their media releases very well, such that they they minimize the, the crazies that come out of the woodwork with, with bad information. Uh, they don't uh, reveal the holdback information, and yet they arm the public with the information that they need to make uh, meaningful calls uh, or provide tips through other means. Um, this is also a case I think that would benefit, uh, and I'm a huge, uh, I've talked about this before, rather than offering reward money, that money is better earmarked for human source development. So informers in the drug world. Unfortunately, our conversation was cut short, zooming on a weekend during COVID. Michael ended with saying reward money can sometimes be better spent on human source development, utilizing informers in the drug world and in the crime world. What we understand after this interview, and have been leaning towards all along, is that yes, hold back evidence in a police investigation can sometimes be key in making sure the right person pays for the crime, but in a cold case, it can also hinder the investigation. The public has all the answers. They just need more information so they know which direction to look. Please Bring Me Home is a volunteer-based organization whose mission it is to solicit anonymous tips regarding cold case missing persons across Canada. Their goal is to find the missing and bring them home to their family and friends. We share that goal. Please visit our friends at www.pleasebringmehome.com. They currently have over four dozen cases listed. Please share. Thank you. My name is Nick Oldreef, and I am the Executive Director of Please Bring Me Home. My role is to seek out partnerships, explore funding opportunities, and ensure that the remaining Board of Directors have what they need to succeed. Today I'm talking to you about the case of Justin Reuter, who went missing from Ottawa, Ontario on October 8th, 2009. Justin was living on Murray Street in Ottawa when he vanished. He had walked across the street to the Petro Jules Moran Park area where he may have been hanging out with friends. This area is described as a rough neighborhood. Police stated that on October 8, 2009, at about 10 p.m., Justin parted ways with a friend on Cote Street near St. Laurent Boulevard after leaving his home in Ottawa's lower town. Justin, who was 14 at the time, had told his friend he didn't want to go home and wanted to stay out late or all night. It is not believed that Justin ran away as this was out of character for him. 
His mother noted that he had never run away before, and he would go to his grandmother's on occasion, but would always call to ask if he could stay for a few days. Justin's family recalls nothing out of the ordinary leading up to his disappearance. In fact, when he left home that day, his mother remembers him saying, I promise I won't be back late, and kissed her goodbye. It is believed that Justin may have had an altercation with another male that evening, but this has yet to be followed up on. There have been no searches to the family's recollection or to the nearby river that surrounds the park. Justin is described as five foot three, 110 pounds, with light brown hair, brown eye color, and Caucasian. He was born May 6, 1995. At the time, police said there were two possible sightings of the boy after he went missing. Near the Ottawa Mission on Walter Street in Lower Town three days after his disappearance, and at the Salvation Army's Men's Shelter on George Street in the Byward Market on the night he disappeared. More than a week after Justin's disappearance, police said that Justin talked to friends during a confirmed sighting in Ottawa's neighborhood. At the time, Justin stressed that he did not want to return home, according to police. One recent tip even indicated that he could be in the Vancouver area. It is Please Bring Me Home's stance that something foul may have happened to Justin on the night he went missing or shortly thereafter. We believe that people close to him, including his friends, may hold the key. Due to them changing their stories, according to family, after Justin went missing, we believe that this needs to be looked at closer. If you know anything about Justin's disappearance, we recommend you contact the Ottawa Police Service or Crime Stoppers. If neither of those are possibilities for you, we ask that you contact Please Bring Me Home. We will accept the tips, we will investigate them, and we will hopefully be able to bring Justin home to his family who has been waiting far too long to see him again. If you have information about the disappearance of Justin Rutter, please contact pleasebringmehome.com. Their website has all of their contact info. If you have information about the disappearance of Melanie Etier, please contact the Ontario Provincial Police, or if you wish to remain anonymous, contact Crime Stoppers. If neither of those are comfortable for you, please know you can contact us at Shedding Light anytime with any sort of information about Melanie's disappearance. We can be reached at sheddinglightpodcast at gmail.com. Our podcasts can be listened to at sheddinglight.buzzsprout.com or on your favorite podcast platform. We have a Facebook page, we are on Instagram, and we also have a phone number at which you can reach us by calling or texting 437 374 3030. Let's join Melanie on her walk home. After spending the Saturday evening watching a movie with friends, Melanie was reported to have left the Pine Avenue residence at approximately 1.40 a.m. Sunday, September 29, 1996. It was a beautiful, clear fall evening. The brightness of the three-quarter moon softly illuminated the road, sidewalks, and all of the homes that lined both sides of the street. It would have been warm enough that you would feel comfortable with just a t-shirt and thin jacket, but the approaching winter weather also would have chilled the tip of your nose and your nostrils as you breathed in the heavenly smell of fallen leaves. Picture her, 
smiling, happy, walking briskly on the sidewalk up this familiar safe street she had traveled so many times with her friends, perhaps preoccupied with the anticipation of her next date with her new boyfriend, or recalling the best parts of the evening with her friends, or even excitement as she thought about her grandma's birthday the next day. Perhaps her daydreaming was interrupted by nervous thoughts as she never walked home alone and suddenly the street seemed very different and somewhat lonely without a friend at her side. Imagine the sounds of muffled music and laughter and voices of teenagers enjoying some drinks at a house party she passed on the street. Someone could have been standing outside and called out to her as she walked by. Imagine the distant sounds of car doors slamming and motors revving as patrons hurried to leave the bar and head to Quebec or the next destination on their Saturday night of fun. The walk home was only seven town blocks and soon enough she would have been approaching Armstrong Street, a much busier street. Headlights and taillights could be made out as they traveled across her view of the end of Pine Avenue and sounds of traffic would be heard now. She may have the image of her nice, warm, cozy bed enter her head as she realized what a long but wonderful day she had just had. As she reached Armstrong Street, picture her, glancing to her right, satisfying her curiosity of who was hanging around after the bar or perhaps why two OPP cruisers were outside of docks. She would be able to make out some of the action two blocks to her right as there were also lights from Night Owl's convenience store and a little motel that brightened the area close to the bar. The odd car leaving the establishment around last call could have passed by her. The ever so faint but undeniable smell of gasoline would have been in the air as the Esso station was just to her right on the corner. The bright lights would have made her tired eyes squint and adjust slightly. Perhaps someone was purchasing gas for their drive to Quebec. Her thoughts would have went back to focusing on her route home as she would have turned left and now just two blocks to the bridge she would see things a little clearer as it was fully lit from the street lanterns above. For a few moments as she approached the bridge, the sound of the flowing water may have reminded her of her favorite place, Pete's Dam. She could have stayed in that thought until she realized she must decide which way to go after crossing the Armstrong Street Bridge over the Wabi River. Should she take the one-way street, the first road to the right at the bottom of the bridge, the one beside the three-story apartment building, or the second road on the right, which led to a dark back alley? Both options likely made her a little uneasy, as they were always considered creepy, especially alone late at night. A car may have crossed the bridge at this point and seen who they thought was Melanie. We don't know if she was spotted at the top or the bottom of the bridge or on which side. At some point, she would have crossed to the other sidewalk on the bridge. If she made it past the bridge, she would have passed by or been within close range of three churches at the church corners, a block or so from home at this point. But she never made it home. She was fun, lovely, cheery, a wonderful spirit, gone when she had her whole life in front of her. That's how Melanie's walk home should have happened. But at some point, unbeknownst to us at this time, the walk home was interrupted. Did the car outside the Pine Avenue residence halt her journey home before it even began? Did something happen as she passed a party on Pine? 
Did she actually make it to the bridge? Did someone spot her from the Esso gas station and follow her? Where, on Armstrong, did she cross to the other side, if indeed she made it that far? Was she hit by a car on the one-way street at the bottom of the bridge? In the parking lot where the white van was last seen? Or in the back alley, behind? We have no way of knowing, at the current time anyway, at which point in the story the journey home got interrupted. But in a few short weeks, Melanie's disappearance will mark the 24th anniversary. People, it's time to bring her home to her mom and her younger sister. Please help Melanie finish her journey home. Join us for our final wrap-up episode on Melanie Etche's case to be released September 29th, 2020. This will be the 24th anniversary of her disappearance. So